Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to the Top 5 at 5. Um, I'm thrilled to have somebody who's an expert in energy, director of research at Raymond James and uh, and the energy analyst. Uh, so, Jeremy, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. Um, Jeremy, why don't we start from the top down? I think, you know, people are still trying to understand what is going on with Russia and Ukraine and why that has put such a squeeze on the energy prices. And of course, we've got the U.S. Uh, inflation data out, the highest reading we've seen in four decades today. Yeah, this was uh, a bit of the making, uh, you know, for quite some time here. Ever since COVID started, there, you've seen a lot of the OECD countries really cut their spending on oil and gas development. There's been this mantra that maybe we've hit peak oil and COVID was the start of that. And so you really start to see an underinvestment in oil and gas supply over the last 18 months. And that undersupply uh, was really starting to be noticed here, especially um, you know last, last fall uh, and really this early January, when you start to see inventories globally really start to fall to some of their lowest levels that we've seen in quite some time, you know, probably three, four, five years here. And suddenly, uh, when you have the Russian-Ukraine conflict and risk that you bring on even less barrels, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real serious issue here. Uh, you know, Russia produces 11 and a half million barrels, 8 million of that gets exported. And that's where suddenly if those start to come off the market here, you really do get yourself here in a, in a pretty tight squeeze. And what is the latest, though? Because there, there have been calls for sanctions on Russian oil, but of course, uh, Germany gets 70% of their nat gas and oil from Russia. That would, I would think, absolutely cripple their economy, let alone their ability to defend themselves or defend anybody else, should that come to be. Um, so where do we stand on that conversation right now? No, that, that is 100% the, the, the issue that the world is facing here right now. Um, you know, it's easy for Canada and the U.S. to say we don't need it. You know, Russia only exports about 8% of the, their oil and products to, to, uh, to the U.S. But when you have rest of Europe um, who, you know, needs much more. So, you know, Denmark is up there with Germany and, you know, more of the Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, you don't have that broad support across Europe. And that's why you've seen, uh, you know, some of these problems and why this is taking so long for different countries to impose sanctions. And even some can, uh, others can't. But I think it may not stop there. You may not actually even need sanctions so much because you can already see uh, the blowback uh, in an ESG type of world here now. Um, it is dangerous for a company to be seen doing business with Russia. So it may be legally allowed, but you look at Shell, for example. Shell bought um, you know, a train of oil, you know, back in, uh, you know, earlier at the beginning of the war and actually went on social media and said, look how cheap we got this oil from Russia. And uh, then suddenly, you know, Ben Shell um, started trending on Twitter here. And then you see a couple of days ago that Shell has said, we will no longer do business with anything in Russia. So you can see how there's a lot of uh, corporate, um, you know, awareness that we cannot be doing deals with 
with uh, Russia. You know, even this morning now, Goldman Sachs is pulling out of Russia. So it's just mm-hmm. one by one by one, all these major organizations that are leaving. And I think that's actually going to be more the um, impetus that actually changes things here is not so much the legal ramifications from governments, but the corporate ESG angle that that is really going to limit the amount of supply that Russia actually is going to be able to bring on here over time. Yeah, that's uh, I think what's been so interesting about these moves from various companies, whether it's LVMH or, you know, now McDonald's, as you mentioned, Goldman Sachs, so many. It's This is really being driven by corporations um, and ESG. It's not always just about the environment. It's about good corporate governance, the G in ESG right. and not waiting for governments to actually do it. But but the, the corporations are actually leading the charge here. Yeah, it's and this is the thing like we've never seen this type of action before from from anybody really for for any like going back in history here. So I think this is one of those items that I think the Russian you know oligarchs and, and Putin you know didn't probably um, appreciate how much the Western the world has a focus on ESG here now uh, and and how much this actually is going to be hurting their economy more than what they probably thought. Yeah. Um, so when we think about the impact on energy prices, um, you know, the other aspect too that you bring up in your note, which I think is so, or your comments, which is so interesting is that, you know, even if you didn't have sanctions on um, Russian energy, there would be, there probably are sanctions for companies doing business with them in terms of rigs and equipment and parts. So that would impact their ability to produce anyway. All of, all of it, the logistics. A lot of the oil that comes from Russia here, the new stuff, about 80% of their oil is, uh, is, you know, old conventional declining oil. So, you know, to get, you know, new polymers or prop in, you need Western technology, uh, you know, some of the offshore uh, growth that they plan. Once again, you need Western technology here. So not only the technology and, and personnel, but uh, you also have logistics in terms of insurance for boats, uh, you know, aircraft, you know, sending parts, spare parts to pumps that go down. There is just a number of logistics that I don't think is maybe fully appreciated in terms of, yeah, here's some government sanctions, but a lot of these other companies that, uh, you know, do business have just said, you know, we don't need to do business here anymore. I think a good example is Venezuela when, when you, you know, Venezuela was, you know, a major OPEC country and you see how much their production has gone in decline over the last few years uh, with sanctions and the sanctions that seemingly apply to Russia just with the ESG angle here. Uh, I think could actually, you know, make it much more of a bigger issue here long term. And, you know, Putin may be able to negotiate, you know, probably peace and try and get, um, you know, the sanctions reversed. But it still comes back to an ESG angle where maybe guys just don't want to be seen doing with business with Russia, even though these sanctions were reversed here. So I think that's what's going to make energy, uh, especially oil here, you know, you know, you know, elevated here for quite some time. So, yeah, so talk to us a little bit about the price action, because the price action, you know, I can un- I can understand why it went up. There's been a lack of investment, not just over 18 months, but for many, many years. Um, and, you know, but yesterday we saw WTI down by over 10 percent. That's a major move. Yeah. Um, what where are we from your perspective in terms of where the price action should be based on supply constraints, the potential for demand destruction? um and, and capacity look i think we're all just sitting by our computers here just waiting for every little piece of news that comes out uh, and it's just it's so rapid and so many moving parts you know even a few days ago oil was up to you know 130 and then came all the way back down to 115 and 
it's, you know, is there peace? No, no, suddenly there's no peace off. And then Russia will not make an announcement saying we're banning all raw materials. And, and then you're like, well, is that fake news? Is that real news? Uh, like, uh, do we believe yeah. that here? And all these, you know, tweets, I almost want to say, is, is really whipsawing the market back and forth. And I think everyone's kind of trying to grab at straws here saying, what do I believe? Is this real? And just trying to get a, a bit of an edge here because the volatility is, is so incredible here right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that's a good point. I mean, it's really moving on headlines and, and the potential for, you know, some type of piece or off ramp. Um, that's been the biggest concern and, and issue, really, in terms of how, how does Putin walk this back? Um, we'll see. I don't, <clears throat> nobody probably knows. Um, but in the meantime, though, where, where do you think demand destruction will play into this equation? Because at some point, I mean, you know, there's a lot of consumers everywhere that, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to, you know, pay for anything other than their gas and some food. Yeah, I think that uh, your demand destruction will, uh, like, obviously, is going to start taking effect. It probably start taking effect even at $90 oil. And every incremental um, increase, you know, it, it's more and more and more and more. Um, you know, you know, I see, see, saw, saw a recent study here that said, if you actually look at 2008, um, and where inflation has moved since 2008, the equivalent oil would still be around $220, where we really start to see uh, demand destruction. Uh, you remember that's when we saw, you know, taxis and airlines were all charging those fuel surcharges. So we're not quite to that level mm. yet. Um, in Canada, though, it's a little bit different because back in 2008, our dollar was more or less parity. It was about 94, 96 cents right around there. Uh, you know, so at a, you know, 75 cents here today, more or less, um, it's, uh, it's actually probably one of the most expensive that we've seen oil priced in Canadian dollars. So it is going to probably hit the bit of the pocketbook here for Canadians more than Americans. Um, mm-hmm. But just something, some, some, you know, little nuances here, not to mention, you know, the, you know, the carbon tax and other additional fuel taxes have been added. So um, it will start to hurt demand. Um, but, you know, on an inflation adjusted basis, we're not quite for American consumers, we're not quite to where we were in 2008. And so where does that leave you if, in terms of looking at investment opportunities um, in Canada, or the United States? Yeah, it's um, who would have thought, you know, 18 months ago in the midst of COVID when it looked like almost the entire EMP space could have gone bankrupt. Um, here's where we are now. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, oil price in Canadian dollars is one of the highest we've ever seen here. And uh, it's when you think about that and then where costs have come down for these companies uh, and the efficiencies on wells, um, this sector is probably the most profitable that it's ever been in its entire history here. You remember back in 2008, this is when horizontal drilling for oil just got started. So for the most part, we were still drilling vertical oil wells. And so now you put that high price again on what companies can bring out of oil, like an oil well now uh, with the technology, it's it's pretty remarkable. Like most companies get about four or five month payouts on their wells that they're drilling today versus two years ago, um, you know, versus two years, even just a few years ago. So it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. So when you say, well, what companies specifically, you know, there's, I, a lot of them can do well, but always when we look at stocks we always want to so okay so the oil will do what oil prices do but 
what specifically so probably there's a there's a few nuances that we're looking for and one of the biggest ones is who's in the newer plays who's in the top economic plays because even if oil declines if you're still in the top play that will work so um you know a name like uh tamarack would be one of the you know the one of our strong picks here um you know tamarack is your uh you know a clear water operator uh you know 40,000 BOE 45,000 BOE you know and continuing to grow and when you look at Tamarack's history, it used to be a Cardian Viking operator. And when we look at, you know, the kind of the 100 plays here in Canada, um, those plays would be kind of third, fourth quartile. And so when you have a company making a shift from, you know, kind of below average plays to the top decile plays, um, that changes a lot of way the market should look at that valuation multiple. And so we haven't seen that valuation multiple move yet. And I think that's one of the biggest things when um, oil will do its thing, but who's who's shifting their their company portfolio to to be a much better play here? So I got to ask you, when you say play, what does that mean? So play means um, the type of um, area that you're going after. So we always hear about Permian oil or Bakken oil. So here in Canada, there's probably five main plays. You have your Clearwater, which everyone is investors are are quite excited about. It's kind of the newest play here. We have the Montney, we have the Cardian, the Viking, those Duvernay, those would be your five kind of main plays that, that we have here in Canada. Got it. And so the way though Tamarack has shifted their their play um, is is a positive for you. And, and it sounds as though you don't think that the market's really caught on to that, that there should be a bit of a valuation catch-up trade. Yeah, that's right. And so we always look at um, you know, like oil, like a lot of these names have moved up because the price of oil has moved up so much. Um, but depending on which way you can look at valuation, you can look at valuation in a number of different ways here. But for the most part, um, just taking on a very simple way, looking at EV to EBITDA, uh, you know, the sector average would typically trade around five times historically. Um, today, they're trading closer to two times. And so, um, and that's pretty much across the board here, two, two and a half times. And so when you have a company who's in a top tier play, you should be willing to pay more on that multiple versus some other companies that are in just not quite as have as economic places as that. Interesting. Um, let's take a look at another top pick for you, Tourmaline. Yeah, Tourmaline. And I'm going to group a couple of the other uh, BC producers here in this. So Tourmaline is your bellwether operator in, in Northeast BC, uh, you know, largely gas, you know, $14 billion market cap here. Um, but their valuation has been hit here slightly because with the Supreme Court ruling last year that basically stopped all new oil and gas licenses in BC, um, every time we talk to different US investors and we start talking about um, you know, concerns and we bring up you know, the indigenous and the BC royalty review, uh, we, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a non-starter then. Uh, they say, you know what, I'm, not, I'm gonna wait until those um, items get resolved and then I'll come back to look at Tremlin and some of these Northeast BC operators. And so you look at, Trimline and some of the economics that it has. Once again, it's a top quartile economic, you know, company here. Um, but its valuation doesn't reflect that because there's the concern on what does the BC Royalty Review actually do, and uh, you know, when does the Indigenous Blueberry River First Nation, um, you know, you know, issues get get resolved here. Okay. So that being said, um, you know, some of you know, talking to different guys and and different in the field here, we get the sense that. 
uh, you know, the BC Royalty Review has probably done all the same economics that Alberta did when we did our Royalty Review last, back in 2017. And a lot of the things that we did with our Royalty Review actually makes a lot of sense here. Um, and so you'll probably have something like a post C star, what that basically means you low royalty rate up front and then a higher royalty rate, you know, post the back. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's very similar to Alberta here um, that we'll hear in the next month or so. Uh, same thing with the Blueberry River First Nation. Um, they elected actually a new chief here that took spot, took, um, took over on February 15th, uh, who actually happens to own an oil field service industry or a company. So um, you can kind of see the Blueberry River First Nation bands uh, changing their maybe the, their tone possibly here and, and voting with you know and, and voting someone potentially more business orientated so mm -hmm. anyways i'm, I'm uh, hopeful here what from what the uh, the outcome of these two things here are going to be and i think once those are resolved here shortly uh you'll see some of these valuations and u.s investors really start to come into you know termaline being um you know the biggest just to finish off on that with lng yeah. being more and more topical um you know, and the change of tone from government here just in the last week that maybe we do need more LNG here in Canada. Uh, if anybody wants to build LNG on the West Coast, uh, they'll likely have to source that gas from Termaline and Termaline has been pretty um, well known that they want price participation and kind of any LNG uh, contracts here. So that's where you look at LNG or Termaline and say, there is a lot of free cash flow that is gonna to continue to come to this company. Nice, um, full disclosure, I own it. So good to hear those views. Uh, thank you. Um, and, and where does White Cap fit into the conversation as another top pick of yours? Yeah. So once again, White Cap is uh, you know similar to what we saw with the Tamarack, going from you know third, fourth quartile plays to much more top quartile plays here again. And those are always the names where you see the biggest multiple move every single year here. And so as 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 uh, White Cap moves more into uh, especially the Montney, and you start to look at Whitecap's Montney results, I would say uh, Whitecap has probably drilled the fourth best Montney well here in the last year. Um, and uh, and it just kind of shows you what the potential here of their Montney Lake acreage could actually do. So you can still buy Whitecap for an oil name. It doesn't, it, what you can still buy Whitecap um, without the Montney multiple here is, is basically. And so as more and more production shifts from Kind of Cardian Viking to Montney Charlie Lake type plays. That's where uh, you should start to see that multiple expand here. But you, one of the biggest holdbacks on on Whitecap here over the last year was their acquisitions that they bought. There's an overhang of stock with what some of these you know shareholders would do here, and uh, just given the amount of cash that uh, Whitecap has kind of built up in their free cash flow, it sounds like they are going to just use that for some very big buybacks, strategic buybacks here whenever that stock comes available. So this perceived notion of, of a stock overhang is really actually overblown here because, uh, you know, given their new NCIB, they're waiting just for when this, you know, shareholder is looking to sell and, and, and that, that, that overhang is, is really a kind of overblown. Understood. Um... In the interest of time, um, your other two top picks, Vermillion and Enterplus. Why both of those names? Yeah, so quickly, you know, one of the problems in Canada here is if, even if we want to increase oil to, you know, uh, move off Russia, uh, we're restricted by pipeline capacity. But you have Enterplus, though, who's in the North Dakota. Uh, and given the expansion of the, um, you know, the North Dakota pipeline out of there, uh, there actually is quite a bit of more excess capacity out of any kind of play here in North America. So if someone does need to expand production, 
um, Enterplus does have the capacity to actually expand their, their production here. I don't think they necessarily potentially do, um, but uh, but things always change kind of thing here all the time, especially if you know they're being kind of asked to probably increase production. It kind of gives them the catalyst to actually do that because you know the, the economics that these companies make are is pretty robust. And but you know shareholders have been pretty adamant that we want shareholder returns as opposed to um, you know growth. But I think this may be the catalyst to expand it. And then quickly on Vermilion, same thing. You know they're the number one oil producer in France, number two you know gas producer in the Netherlands. Uh, as Europe tries to get off, um, you know, Russian energy, I think these domestic producers in Europe are going to be asked to step it up. And the only reason why Vermilion hasn't been able to increase the production is because delays in licensing and just the regulatory body in terms of getting well licenses. I got to think that speeds up and, and uh, Vermilion should be really able to, you know, you know, be able to take advantage of kind of the, uh, you know, kind of the crisis going on there. That's interesting. You know, I previously have a, I've interviewed the previous CEO many, many times, and it's a Canadian listed company, but the business is overseas. And they did, you know, there there were many times they were struggling with their quarterly results. Yeah, and and that's why one of the reasons why you know investors have somewhat moved away from Vermilion here. There's just been a number of issues over the last few years, especially during COVID, where they paid too high of a dividend, got themselves into debt trouble. You know, slow down on spending, but it just somewhat all unraveled there. So, uh, fast forward and a few strategic acquisitions, buying some very big gas assets here in Ireland. That's going to be able to fund, you know, UK energy and that. Um, you know, you look at the gas prices in Europe here, and it's bouncing around between, you know, hundred dollars and MCF. Like it's just like, you know, we're modeling, you know, fifteen dollar MCF. So, you know, clearly we need to adjust our numbers here. But it's hard for I think anybody to say, well, what is the right price to use here over the next couple of years? Um, so I think that's where everyone's still kind of using our low, like these low numbers. But you know, you start to look at what this, what the cash flow could be for Vermilion. Uh, it quickly delivers the entire company and, and puts it back on a, on a really good footing here going forward. Wow, interesting. And you don't think it's really captured in investors' mindsets yet? No, it's just it's, there's, a, there's a bad history. And so it takes some time for guys to come back. It's, I know it's, it has moved, but given how much the commodity has moved here, uh, especially in Europe, um, you know, Vermilion is, uh, if I take the current strip price, Vermilion is the cheapest name in our entire coverage list here today. Interesting. Um, very interesting. And Jeremy, we're going to wrap it up, but before we do, um, we started the conversation, which wasn't recorded, um, where I asked, uh, you know, are you getting a lot of calls from investors, institutional investors? And, and so yeah. what do you say to that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, calls are definitely picked up here, um, but I find the calls are still more, you know, high turnover funds, hedge funds. Um, and we still haven't seen the big generalist funds come back into the market inside and just, you know, inbound calls and you kind of look at, you know, trade on our, on our, on our trading desk here. Um, you still see, uh, you know, some hesitation knowing, is this run real? And, you know, we'll wait for a pullback here. And I think that's what, um, it's just, things have moved so quickly here. It just takes the bigger generalists more time to come into the market. But I think there's, the you've started to have conversations um, and they are definitely having a change in mindset that wait it's like maybe energy is going to be around for quite a bit longer here than than maybe we appreciate it and on that note do you have um a price for that you can see for wti over the next i don't know six twelve months wow you know i you know we have our official price deck which wasn't updated until, since last january 
which kind of stands at you know $78 here. Obviously, given situations have changed, but just given how tight the market is, um, you know, what OPEC could really do here in terms of the near term and what Russia, like, and it's honestly anybody's guess. Could oil go to $150? No problem, kind of thing. Like, it's just, it really, we are really in this uncharted territory here. And I think there's a lot of nuances that it's difficult. And I think that's the problem with a lot of the CEOs who I talk to is they just say, we don't know how to make an investment decision here right now because we don't know if oil is going higher. Should we hedge? Or is oil going lower? And do we expand our spending? It's just, there's just too much noise and too much volatility mm -hmm. here for anybody to do anything. So the longer this plays out, the longer um, lack of supply comes on and just ex exaggerates the situation here. Interesting. And just lastly, what is the latest read on OPEC and the UAE? So even just like a couple months ago, so OPEC meeting in February took 16 minutes and they're like, yeah, let's increase our production 400,000, kind of keep up the same plan. Uh, which was one of the shortest OPEC meetings ever. And then in March here, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was 13 minutes. And it was just like, wow, you guys are all in agreement here, which is it's, it's like in 13 minutes. And you're like, yep, let's stick with the plan here. So that's um, what caused oil to move up a little bit. Um, and then until yesterday where the UAE and Iraq both came out and said, well, wait a second, maybe we need to have a broader conversation about increasing supply. And so that's what caused oil to drop, you know, $10, $14, um, you know, yesterday here. And so uh, now it's going up again. And I think there's, everyone's kind of looking at logistics because you look at OPEC already and they're already coming short uh, with a number of other members not being able to even meet their current quotas here, let alone expand it. So I think that's, uh, I think there's coming to the realization maybe we don't have nearly enough spare capacity as, uh, as we all kind of claim we do here. Right. Oh, that's that's helpful. Um, and then then just lastly, um, Iran, um, what might we expect there in terms of any type of supply coming onto the market? Yeah, you know, Iran and and including and Venezuela there as well, too. It's interesting how, you know, government officials are going saying, you know what, we're good. You guys want to bring on your oil here once again. Um, so a complete game game changing but you know iran was still producing quite a bit of oil and supplying of that to, to you know to china and a few other countries here that will that didn't participate in the sanctions um so you know iran can probably supply some oil probably about maybe a million barrels here in your term but nothing um and and probably more over 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 time here but nothing to really replace russia in the potential that we could see in the terms of you know the sanctions and the downfall of supply that russia may be able to provide here and would there be any um, room for Canada to supply the United States should they need it? Um, and, and where does the Keystone XL pipeline fit into that? Yeah, TransCanada said, you know, they're not going to restart these conversations. Um, so that seems unlikely, I guess, here right now. Uh, you know, we do have rail capacity that could, uh, you know, move higher. You know, we still do have you know, could probably increase our production by about five, 10% in terms of our exports. But, you know, you really are trying to get then creative in terms of some of the things that you could do. But for the most part, though, we are really limited in terms of what we could probably provide here to the U.S. Interesting. All right, Jeremy, we will leave it there. Great conversation. I think it's really going to help a lot of people understand what's going on and all the different dynamics as there are so many, you know, <clears throat> as you pointed out. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kevin. Okay, great. I'll speak Take to care. you soon. Thank you. Bye.